for those of you who may be uh, visiting with us uh, today, we have been examining the events that, are, that leading, are leading up to and including the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to date, we've examined some remarkable incidents that have occurred as Jesus and his disciples were on the road to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover, which we just learned not many of you know what that is. But uh, anyway, that's what he was doing. And uh, as, he was approaching, um, as he was approaching Jericho, he came across a rich young ruler who came to him and said, you know, what, what do I got to do to get into heaven? And Jesus exposed to him what was lacking in his life, and what was lacking is that he did not make God number one in his life. Because the Bible says the greatest commandment is that he'd love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was a man of many wealthy possessions. He had a lot of stuff. And yet he knew that all that stuff didn't answer the greatest need in his life. And that was what happened to him or what would happen to him after he died. And Jesus exposed that in his life. And yet the man turned away from him, dejected, and walked away. Because yet even though he knew something was missing in his life, he couldn't believe they would have to give up everything and follow Jesus. And so his disciples were, were concerned about that because Jesus said it would be easier for a camel to crawl through an eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. And yet he went on to say this, but you know what? But with God, all things are possible. And Jesus would demonstrate that in his travels on the road to Jerusalem. As he approached Jericho, he came across a, a beggar who was sitting by the side of the road and heard that it was Jesus coming and he yelled out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And Jesus Christ opened the eyes of this blind man, demonstrating he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah of the world. And as he approached Jericho, that event took place as he was passing through, not intending to stay very long in Jericho. We're told that he ran across a man whose name was Zacchaeus, who was also a very wealthy man. The rich young ruler, we're not told how he gained his riches, but we're told definitely how Zacchaeus got to be wealthy. And he was a tax collector. He stole from people, and that's how he got all his wealth. And yet the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus entered into a relationship with God because he received Jesus Christ gladly. Said he had confessed his sin, acknowledged what he did was wrong before God, and received Jesus Christ as his forgiveness or the payment for his sin. And, the, and Jesus at that point demonstrated that even this rich man had possibilities if God was involved. Because with man things seem impossible, as we'll see, but with God all things are possible. And as he left Jericho and approached the city of Jerusalem, we're told that the crowds or multitudes heard he was coming. And Jesus sat on, the cold, on, a, on a, a young horse and he entered into the city of Jerusalem. And the multitudes of people were crying out, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were praising God saying salvation has come from above. And they laid their robes or their cloaks in front of the horse as he went through into the city. And he was worshipped as Savior and King. And, he was, and, and they waved palm branches at him. It was a type of honor that was bestowed only upon a king. And he rode in peacefully. And the Bible says this multitude of people were in awe of what was taking place. And yet it wasn't many days after that that he would be betrayed by one of his own. For 30 pieces of silver he would be sold out. He would be arrested in the garden and his disciples would fall asleep numerous times when Jesus had asked them to stay awake because the hour was near. We're told that even Peter, who had said, I'll go to my death with you, ran from him and hid. And as he was challenged by a young girl, began to swear at her and said he never even knew him, didn't even know who he was. And as Jesus had predicted, not only that he'd be betrayed, but also that Peter would deny him. A rooster crowed in the distance and Peter went away and wept. And then we're told that he was arrested and he was taken before Pilate. And we studied the last time we were together that he was taken before Pilate. He was taken before Herod. And both Pilate and Herod said this, that there was no guilt that they could find in him. That he was not guilty of the charges that were brought before him. And yet the multitudes of people continue to say, crucify him. And the religious leaders, as well as those in the Sanhedrin and all that were involved, wanted Jesus put to death. 
And what's fascinating as we take a look at all that, that's exactly what they did. They decided to crucify him. And that's what we're going to look at today. Today, as we continue on the road to resurrection, we'll examine what has to be the most powerful of all subjects, and that is the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you've got your Bibles, we'll look at Luke's narrative as he takes a look and examines this particular incident for us. But in Luke chapter 23, I want to pick up where we left off at verse 20 and go on from there. And as we'll see through this particular account, there's going to be seven observations that I want to make that I want you to follow with me. They're important observations as they relate to the crucifixion of our Lord. And it's going to be something that we all need to take a look at and learn much from it. But in Luke chapter 23, starting with the verse 20, we read these words. It says, And Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand should be granted. And he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. What's fascinating is an interesting study of human nature as, as we look at this because what happened was as they continued, as, as Pilate continued to say, this man hasn't done anything wrong, I'm going to release him, the crowd said crucify him. And as Pilate continued to say, but what has he done? They drowned out the reason and the logic that we see here and their voices got louder and isn't that always the way it is with humanity? The, 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 the lower our reasoning or the, the least amount of logic is always followed by raising our voice. And it's fascinating because speechwriters will usually write this. And, and, and I read this once of a speech that was being uh, read by someone. His speechwriter uh, wrote this. At this point, raise your voice very loudly because our argument is real weak. <laughs> and isn't that true? You know, we get louder as our arguments are revealed that they're not very strong. And that's exactly what we see here. They began to shout. We don't want to hear what you're saying. We don't want to hear any reason. We don't want to hear any logic. We want them crucified, and we want what we want when we want it. And that's exactly what took place. And Pilate sold out. He gave them over to their will. And it says, And when they led him away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrena, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. It says, And there were following him a great multitude of people and all, of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and on the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree, what will happen in the dry? It says, And two others also were, who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. It says, And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved himself. Let him save himself, as if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. 
And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him and saying, Are you not the Christ? Then save yourself and save us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. As we go through this account of, that Luke gives us of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, there are seven observations that I want to make as we go through it, and seven key observations that we'll see, and we're immediately introduced to the first one, and that is that Simon carried his cross. We read that Simon, we're told in, the verse, in verse 26, as we first are introduced to it, we're, we're told that, the, and then when they led him away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, we're immediately introduced this, to this man, Simon, who's traveled about 800 miles from his home in North Africa to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And what's fascinating as we look at this account, why do, does the Gospel account include this event as we see it? What's the purpose behind it? And what's fascinating is this. As Jesus and the multitudes of people are being led out of the city, we see Simon of Cyrene is coming in toward the city that he had been staying in the countryside. And it's obvious because of the number of people, we know that there are two and a half to three million people who travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Passover. And like any major event, you can imagine what it does to the amount of rooms that are available and places to stay. And so we understand that Simon is staying out in the countryside, but he would come into the city to celebrate Passover. So as he's staying out in the countryside on his way into the city, he is coming in. Jesus and his multitude is coming out, and it's an incredible situation that's going to take place. And what first seems to many of us as a circumstance, we're going to find out isn't that at all. And in fact, when you read your Bible, there is no insignificant detail that is mentioned. Everything that's mentioned in there is mentioned for a purpose and for a reason. And it's critical that we understand that. Some of us, as we read through our Bible, sometimes like to just skim through and go over it, but every word, every detail has significance, and that's why God has recorded it for us. And as we look at this, there's nothing in Scripture that's mere coincidence or insignificant fact. So now as we take a look at what's going on here, I'll give you a little background. It was part of the prisoner's sentence, so to speak, to have to carry his own cross out to the site of the crucifixion. Now, if you can imagine, Jesus, at this particular time, he has already been arrested. You need to understand the background to understand what's going on here. He has already been arrested. He is up all night long. He has been tried, as we'll see in the wee morning hours, early morning hours, because Pilate, as he, awa as he awakes that morning, is faced with this situation to deal with. But even before that, we learn that there was much abuse that took place during the night when Jesus was arrested. The soldiers mocked him, the soldiers beat him, they spat upon him, they blindfolded him, they played games with him. If you're really God and you know everything, then right now tell us which one of us is about to hit you. And they would hit him. And then they had a crown of thorns that they put on his head as they put a robe over him and mocked him as a king. So you're the king of the Jews. Well, here, well, here, here you go, king. And they put a robe on him, a purple robe, signifying royalty. And they would put this crown of thorns on his head. And so they began to beat him and abuse him all throughout the night. So now he's up all night long. We learn that then he is also taken before Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to deal with it. He sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back because Herod can't find anything wrong with him. And so he's been tossed to and from all of these different judicial districts and he's exhausted by this point. And so part of the, the sentence of a prisoner is that he would take the cross beam and have to carry it himself to the place of execution. 
So as Jesus is walking out and as he is falling undoubtedly, falling and having a difficult time in his humanity carrying this crossbeam, the soldiers react to this. They don't want him dying before he's crucified because that would defeat the whole purpose. The soldiers think that they want to keep him alive to put him on the cross to crucify him, but little do they realize that the plan of God is that Jesus stay alive until he's crucified because he cannot die before he gives himself up on the cross because that has always been the plan of God. So the soldiers unwittingly participate in the plan of God because God uses people all the time to, to participate and to fulfill what he says he's going to do. And sometimes we think that we, you know, we know what's going on and we don't even begin to understand that, you know what, God's in total control of everything. Jesus can't die before he's crucified. So as Simon's coming in, the soldiers think, I don't want this guy dying. So they grab this guy, literally says they enlisted him or seized him and said, you come here. And they grab them. Now, could you imagine Simon? He's on his way to celebrate Passover. He's on his way to offer a sacrificial lamb for the sins of himself and for his family. And little does he realize that now he is going to meet the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who will die ultimately on the cross for him. And Simon's on his way with devout uh, religious devotion to do what God has required him to do. And little does he realize this incident that takes place will change his life forever. So they grab Simon, they take him, they say, you're going to carry the cross. And now can you imagine the humiliation? Simon, on his way to participate in one of the most holy of days, the Passover, is now told to carry the cross of someone he believes to be a common thief. And he's about to defile himself. Don't forget, they had gone around through the countryside and they had whitewashed all the cemeteries so that no one would touch anything unclean because then they'd be defiled for the Passover. And so all of a sudden he's saying, you're going to carry this man's cross. And he can't believe this is happening. He's probably going, I can't believe this. I've got to go home. What am I going to tell my family? That on my way into Jerusalem, they grabbed me to carry the cross of a thief and a murderer? This is a pretty crummy day. But little does he realize that God takes humiliating circumstances all the time in humiliating situations, and he uses them for his good and for his glory. And it's fascinating as we take a look at that because they grabbed him, they seized him, they laid hold of him. They didn't ask, do we have any volunteers in the crowd? They just grabbed the guy and said, you're going to do it. He didn't have a choice. And what's fascinating as we look at this, there's something else behind the scenes that we need to understand, and that's this. Guilty people carried their cross. Jesus wasn't guilty. Jesus wasn't guilty. And so as God ordained Simon to carry the cross of Jesus... It was one more indication from God himself that Jesus Christ was not guilty of any sin. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He was innocent. But what's even more fascinating to me is this. Simon was guilty. Simon was guilty just as we are guilty. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Simon was a guilty man, and he thought that he was an innocent man carrying the cross of a guilty man, and what he didn't realize is that he was a guilty man carrying the cross of an innocent man, and that Jesus Christ would be the substitute for his, for his sin, for his death. And as he was going to the cross, it's fascinating that there were thousands that came to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, and Simon was one of them. And uh, what's interesting as we take a look at this whole situation is what looked to be unbelievably, unbelievably embarrassing to Simon would turn out to be the greatest day of his life. Before Simon met Jesus, 
he had religion, he had devotion. After Simon met Jesus, he had beheld the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is what John the Baptist said when Jesus came walking towards him. What's fascinating, too, as we look at this, Mark identifies Simon in Mark 15, 21 as the father as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, the reason he identified Alex, that he identified Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus is because those reading the account would know who Alexander and Rufus were. In Mark 15, 21, he identifies Simon very specifically as the father of these two men. Now you say to yourself, well, wait a minute, how do these people know who who Simon's sons were? Well, I'll tell you how they knew, because the Bible tells us in the book of Romans that Paul addressed Rufus at one point and sent greetings to him, that Alexander and Rufus became leaders in the early church. Well, how did that happen? I'll tell you how it happened, because after Simon left that day and went back home, he introduced his family to the Messiah of the world. He introduced his family to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And he was, made, he was introduced to Jesus himself in a very humiliating way. You know, what's fascinating to me is I deal with people all the time who say, well, the only reason that that person reached out or the only reason that person prayed to receive Jesus Christ is because they're going through a tough time in their marriage. They're going through a difficult time in their business. They're going through a tough time with the health issue right now. Well, they're suffering from cancer. They're looking for a crutch. They're looking for a reason. Hey, let me tell you something. God uses humiliating circumstances in our lives because He loves us and He uses that to draw people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and into a relationship with God. And the only person who turns their back on that is a proud and stubborn person who refuses to believe what God says and that is that we need forgiveness because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me tell you something. There's no one more stubborn than a person who has seen bottom, so to speak, and yet will not reach up to be forgiven by God. That is the most prideful, stubborn person that you'll ever meet on the face of the earth. A person who should be broken and yet continues to shake their fist in the face of God. Well, let me tell you something about Simon. He was humiliated, and you know what? It broke his spirit to the point where he took close observation of what went on that day and he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. It's fascinating as we take a look at that. There's no accidents or what ifs. I mean, when we're reading through the Bible, we need to take a better, closer, and, and a harder look at, at what's going on and what God wants us to know. Because Simon was just passing by, but that was no different than Jesus Christ passing through Jericho. That was no different than Jesus Christ coming across the rich, rich young ruler or the blind beggar or Zacchaeus as he went through Jericho. There's no what-ifs or happenstances in the kingdom of God. God's in control of all things. It was appointed. It was destiny. And that's exactly what took place. And what's fascinating is this. Humiliation, I believe this, humiliation always precedes salvation. And you say, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. It's only a broken person. The Bible says it's a, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will never despise. That it's a broken person. It's a contrite heart. Contrition means I agree with God what He says. I'm guilty before God. I'm wrong before God. And I need forgiveness. A contrite person. God's, God will never despise the prayer of a broken person. It says, God, I need you. I need forgiveness. That's exactly what we saw taking place. Now you contrast that humility 
with the pride and the stubbornness of the rich young ruler. Contrast that humility with the pride and the stubbornness of religious leaders. Those who were confronted with the evidence and yet refused to believe it. Why? Because they didn't want to believe God. They had their own agenda. No thanks, I don't need you. I'm just fine on my own, thank you. That's a proud person. And one last thing which is kind of fascinating is this. The act of carrying the cross of Jesus graphically illustrated in the life of Simon uh, that Christ's challenge to take up your cross daily and follow him might never be forgotten. Jesus Christ had already told his disciples, if any man wishes to come after me, he's going to have to deny himself today, take up his cross daily and follow me. That was symbolic of a life that was going to be left behind. The Bible says if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things, what? Pass away and all things become new. It's a graphic illustration of he's, there's no turning back. When a person took on the crossbeam uh, to head to crucifixion, there was no one go, going back to the old way of life. There was no going back at all because crucifixion led to, uh, led to death. You weren't coming back. And what he was saying to you and saying to I is the same thing. Hey, you know what? When you believe Jesus Christ, there's no going back to your old life. That life no longer exists. You've died to self and you've become alive to God. You've become alive to God's will and you've sacrificed and you've, and you've killed yourself, so to speak, and selfish desires. And now you've become alive to God. Not my will anymore be done, God, but what do you want me to do? What do you want in my life? I'm here to serve you. God, you're not here to serve me. I'm here to serve you. And that's exactly what was being demonstrated in front of us. The Apostle Paul said it best of all when he said this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself up for me. You see, the Apostle Paul knew there was no turning back. When he gave his life, he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. The Bible said he had been crucified at that moment in time with Jesus Christ. And it was no longer him who even lived, but it was God living through him. And he's saying, hey, the not, this life I now live, I, I live by my faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he gave himself up for me. See, that's a graphic illustration of what we see here when Simon picked up the cross and carried it for Jesus Christ. Simon's life was radically changed that day. There was no going back. He became a leader in the early church. He went home and he couldn't wait to tell his family about the Savior of the world that he saw. He couldn't wait to share it with his sons who embraced that same forgiveness that was offered by God. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. They embraced Jesus Christ and they became leaders in the early church. And Mark wrote it and identified him as the father of Alexander and Rufus because everybody that read it knew who they were. But maybe they didn't know the story behind it. Maybe they didn't know how they came to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, now they did. And as we look at all this, we begin to realize that the cross was a death sentence. And if you don't believe that, take a look at the next observation that we'll take, and that's this, that there were women, and the women that were following him were crying over what was happening to him. They were crying over what was happening to him. There was a large number of people following him, and including among them were women who mourned and wailed for him. They were mourning and wailing. The words used to describe the scene were the same words that are used to describe a funeral service. These women recognized that there was no turning back. There's no turning back from the cross. Once he was on that road, no one ever survived that road. That every person that was crucified died. And that's very important to understand because later we would see that there were people that went around spreading a rumor that Jesus didn't die. He didn't die on the cross. They took him down. He was still alive, but maybe he was in a coma or maybe he was passed out, but he didn't die. 
And therefore, when they put him in the tomb, the only reason he woke again or came back to life wasn't because he was dead, but because he was revived or resuscitated. Hey, and you know what? That's nonsense. Because anybody that understood Roman history knew this. Not one person ever survived the cross. Everyone died. And the women that followed mourned and lamented. The, the word lament is the same word that we have in the Old Testament for lamentation. The book of lamentation written by the prophet Jeremiah who we know as the weeping prophet because he mourned and lamented over the, the uh, judgment of God for the nation of Israel. They lamented him. They wailed. They mourned. And if you've ever been at a funeral where you heard somebody wail or mourn, it's one of those heart-wrenching things that is very difficult to even deal with. And, and, uh, and I, I did a funeral a couple weeks ago, and, and the guy that spoke in front of me began to mourn and wail. And, and it was just broken up, and, and I couldn't contain myself. It just breaks your heart to know that such agony and grief exists in the world that we live in. There's nothing like that. And these women, were, they were wailing and mourning and lamenting. But what's fascinating as we see all this is what's amazing is Jesus re reply to them. He says this as, as they're traveling. He says, you know, don't, don't mourn for me. He's saying, I don't need your sympathy. I don't want your pity. Don't mourn for me. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, it would have been better never to have children at all. Why? Because God would judge them for what they did. God will judge us as well. He says, don't weep for me. Don't mourn for me. But recognize the judgment of God, God is, is ultimately upon all of us. And we need to recognize and understand that. God will judge us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge it or condemn it. Why? Because the world had been condemned already. The world stands guilty before God and we will be judged accordingly. We are all on the road to hell which not, is not a politically correct message today. But let me just tell you something. It is biblically correct and it is truth. If you are sitting here today and you have never ask Jesus Christ or pray that God would forgive you of your sins. The Bible says you have already been condemned and one day you will stand before Him because it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. You will give an account or answer why you rejected the loving kindness and mercy of God. And what's fascinating as we go through this, Jesus said it again. He warned them of judgment. He says it's time to repent. All throughout the Bible, God says judgment is coming unless what? Unless you repent. We need to repent. No one wants to hear that. Because most of us don't think we're guilty of anything. He says we need to repent. He gave them an opportunity to repent and to turn to Him for forgiveness. And they still did not do it. The nation of Israel rejected Him as Messiah and King. And in the year 70 AD, Titus came through and destroyed Jerusalem killing everyone that was in there. Almost three million Jews were murdered at that particular time. And what's even more fascinating is this. As you study history, you realize this, that the men who were defending the city, what they did to survive is that the Romans tried to starve them to death so they would submit. And they would not submit. And what they did, in, instead of submitting to Rome, they took their own wives and they took their own children and they ate their food and they drank their water so either their women and children starved to death before them and if they didn't starve to death, they ended up killing their own family and then eating their own flesh. 
And when Jesus said it would have been better for you never to have been born or better for you never to have a child, what he was saying was there's a day coming where you would watch your own son or your own daughter die right before your eyes. And that can be no greater tragedy, I think, on the face of the earth as a parent than to see something like that happen. But what Jesus was saying was you better repent. You better repent and you better turn to God. And if you don't, then the judgment of God would be upon you. And as he goes through, we notice this, that there were two criminals that were crucified with him. The Bible says that two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. What's fascinating is if you read the book of Isaiah sometime, you'll see that in Isaiah chapter 53, read it on your own this week. Because in Isaiah 53, a book that was written almost 800 years before this event took place, we see very specifically that what Jesus was doing at this point or what was taking place at this point fulfilled prophecy. Those of, who study such things and spend time looking at it, there were over 30 prophecies fulfilled on the day of crucifixion alone. 30. God continued to try to get their attention by using his word. He continued to try to get them to turn back to the word of God to see what was going on. God said it. He told them. He recorded it for them. All they needed to do was read it and submit to it and recognize what was going on. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that he would be numbered among the transgressors. transgressors. Here he was being crucified with two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And there's no doubt that, you know, that these criminals witnessed the trial of Jesus Christ because they were condemned the same time. And we'll see in a minute how important that is, but think about this. They stood in the wings and watched the trial of Jesus Christ take place. They saw Pilate say, he's not guilty. They heard that he was sent to Herod, and Herod said he wasn't guilty. They saw Pilate try to release him, and, and they knew that he wasn't guilty. And the Bible says that here Jesus was being crucified with these two thieves who were guilty. They were found guilty of murder and insurrection. And what they would do is they would take that subscription or superscription that they would put above them and they would hang it from their neck as they carry their crossbeam out so that people would know when they walked by what that person was guilty of. Talk about a crime deterrent. They would walk by and they would see him hanging there. They would be crucified and above their name was written murderer, thief, murderer, uh, insurrectionist, whatever. And we'll see how important that is in a second. And so as they, were, as they were going through and walking by, these two criminals were crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And let me just tell you something, how important that is. Both of them had equal access to Jesus Christ as they hung on the cross. One was on his right and one was on his left. But both of them had access to him throughout this entire ordeal, which is critical as we take a look at it. It says that they crucified him and they carried him to a place that was called the skull. And what's fascinating, too, is that so often, you know, we try to find these places. <coughs> we try to... Hang on a second. Excuse me. We try to find these places. And what happens is we, we turn these places into the place of idol or worship instead of the person. You know what I'm saying? People carry crosses around with them. I saw one gal at a baseball game. She was, she was, doing some, she was saying her rosaries and kissing a crucifix while her son was pitching. And, you know, and we, we take all these things and we turn them into idols. And what's important is it's not even so much important where this took place as much as it is who it took place upon. The person is a critical thing that we recognize and understand here. The place was called the skull. It was a place of execution. Where it is, they debate all the time. But you know what? Let's not even debate it because let's focus on the person who was crucified. 
And as we go through this, we see it was providential that Jesus was crucified between two thieves. They both had equal access to him. Both could read Pilate's superscription above his name. Both of them had been found guilty of robbery, or, or, or not even robbery, but robbery in this particular culture had a connotation of violence as well. So they're probably guilty of, of robbery and murder when they stole from the people they stole from. And so both of them are hanging there. Above their name is, hey, murderer and thief. Above the name of Jesus Christ, it said, this is Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. Now, as they're hanging there, there's not a whole bunch else to do. And you know, they're just kind of taking that all in, trying to figure out what is going on here. Here's a guy that's not guilty. The only charge against him was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Above us, this is us, murderers and thieves. And it had to make an impact. But these two criminals were crucified with them. Now what's fascinating is, all these people were standing around, and it says that the people considered the events, but they didn't respond to it. All these people are standing around, they're watching what's going on, and the rulers, they're, they're sneering at them, but the people are watching, and these are the same people, don't forget, that not many days before that were crying out in the street, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, that salvation has come from God. Now the same multitude of people go out to the site of the crucifixion, and they're watching all this. It kind of reminds me of people that watch auto racing just to see the crash. You know what I mean? It's like there's something there that attracts people and draws people. You know, we want to see brutality. We want to see violence. We're attracted by that. And these same people that were crying out that, that salvation has come from above and glory to God in the highest, Hosanna in the highest, and laying their cloaks and their robes and palm branches before them, were now following them out into this place of crucifixion to watch this, this incredibly ugly sight. They saw what was going on and yet they didn't respond. And what's interesting, too, as Scripture continues to be fulfilled this day, is the rulers and the soldiers, they criticize him. They're all there. The people stood watching. The rulers even sneered at him. It says, and they said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's really Christ, the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers came up. They mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. They said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above which read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. They sneered at him. They uh, jeered him. It says in some accounts they hurled insults at him, which is fascinating because it's almost, it almost has the same idea as throwing a rock or a stone at somebody. There, he was in his most vulnerable state, and they were throwing these insults at him. It says that they mocked his name and his identity as they were passing by. Now, don't forget, this was out on the highway on a basic thoroughfare in and out of Jerusalem because that's how they pulled Simon out of the crowd. Simon was walking in on this major road. They were all coming out. And the reason they crucified him on this major road was in case you were going to Jerusalem with any ideas of breaking any laws, uh, they just wanted to make a point as you headed there that it wouldn't be a wise thing to do. Now think about it, you're, you're a crook walking into the city and you're seeing all these people that are crucified along the roadway. And above their names written the exact same thing you're thinking of going in Jerusalem to do. That is what I call, you know, a criminal deterrent. <laughs> it really is. And it, and it worked. And, and, you know, and so people saw that. It was like, I, I, don't, I don't think I'll do that. And yet, as they walked by him, or as these people came by him, they mocked him, they jeered him, they threw insults at him. And one of the things that they threw at him was, at one point Jesus said that in three days I will destroy the temple, but th uh, I will destroy the temple, and three days later I will raise it again. And they began to mock him, saying, yeah, this is the same guy that said he's going to rebuild the temple after three days, after it was destroyed. Now, let's see him do it now. I bet he can't do it now. And that's the kind of stuff that they heard. And here's a guy, hey, he saved all these other people, why can't he save himself? And they mocked him, and they ridiculed him. 
And what's fascinating as we go through all of this was, was what Jesus' response was to that. Look at this, and I don't want you to miss it. In Luke 23, 34, look what he says. As all of this was going on, here's what Jesus said. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not only did Jesus practice what he preached, but he recognized, you know what? That, ma that man sins before God, oftentimes so ignorant of what the consequences are. That Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, according to the fulfillment of Scripture, was interceding on our behalf. He was interceding on the behalf of those who stood right in front of him and mocked him and ridiculed him. You know, what's interesting to me is that I don't care. What I get out of this is very simple, and that's this. I don't care what anybody has ever done. I don't care if there's a point in your life where you mocked those who believed in Jesus Christ, where you ridiculed those who said that He is the only way to the Father, where you've ridiculed those or mocked or jeered those who said that, you know what, that you're on the road to hell unless you confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. I, it doesn't really matter what you've done in the past. The Bible says this that God is willing to forgive you. And even in this moment of utmost terror and agony, Jesus looked at those who were insulting him and said, Father, forgive them, because they are clueless as to what they're doing. I look back on my life and I remember ridiculing Christians and mocking them, telling them to shut up and to sit down, and what they had to share was stupidity. And I look back on that and I'm brought back to the cross at this point, and I'm reminded that even at that moment in my life, God demonstrated his love for me, and yet while I was still a sinner, he sent Christ to die for me. I realized as I look back on that, that he was, Jesus was interceding on my behalf, saying, Father, you see that mental case? You see that idiot, that moron? Forgive him, because he doesn't have a clue what he's doing. And that's what we see happening here. It was an open invitation the rulers and the soldiers all criticized him, and Jesus' response to them was, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And yet, one of the criminals who was hanging next to him challenged him to prove his claim, which is kind of interesting. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, Hey, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Christ? Then save yourself. Oh, and I'll, oh, by the way, and save us too. You know what? Personally, I believe this as we look at these last two observations. I, I believe that all of mankind is represented by the two criminals that are hanging on each end of the cross. And I'll tell you why I believe that. I believe that this man represents all those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ until he does for them what, he want, what, what they want him to do. We got a world of people saying, okay, if it's really true that the only way that I'm going to get to the Father is through Jesus Christ, then I want him to, hey, promote me on my job. Give me a million bucks. Heal me a cancer. Uh, find me a nice wife or husband. I want God to do for me what I want. And then when he does it, then maybe I'll believe in him until I want something else. And they challenge him to do for them what they want done. If you're really the Christ, then why don't you save yourself and, by the way, save us too? If you're really who you claim to be, then you do for me what I ask of you to do. And what's fascinating about that is this. We are so stupid, we don't even know what we're asking. Think about this. If he's saying, if you really are the Christ, then save yourself and save us. If Jesus gets off the cross, he's not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. 
He's not the Savior because it was appointed that he would die and shed his blood on the cross. That was the plan of God. And all throughout his life, Satan tried to get him to not do that. And Jesus prayed in the garden, is there any other way to get this done? If not, then this is what's going to have to be. Not my will be done, but yours be done. If Jesus would have got off the cross, he wouldn't have been the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He couldn't save that man. And so often the case, we ask God to do for us what we want him to do, not realizing it's probably the worst thing that could ever happen in our life. And God's not going to do that. Why? Because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And he's going to use any circumstance in our life to break us and humble us so we reach up and ask for forgiveness and agree with God that we are lost without him. Isn't that fascinating? This criminal, like many people in the world, say, God, do for me what I want you to do. God is not your genie or personal valet. He's not. He doesn't exist to serve you, but we exist to serve him. But what's fascinating is this, that Jesus Christ, while here on earth, said this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you doubt God? Do you even sneer at him or mock at him as to the claims that he made? Do you challenge him? Then I want you to consider in closing the response of the other criminal. This guy challenged him to prove he was God. The other guy committed his life and his future to Jesus Christ. Don't miss this. It says in Luke, starting with verse 40 of chapter 23, we read this. <clears throat> but the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Do you not even fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? The word but indicates a, a strong contrast of opinion. It says, but, it says, the other answered, the other of a different kind. Now, what's interesting is this. As you would walk down this highway and look at these men who are being crucified, you would look at these two thieves and you would see written above their name, murderer and thief. From all external appearances, these two guys are exactly the same. In fact, I wouldn't doubt that they were friends that were convicted together because they knew each other and they were there at the same time being convicted of the same crime. They probably knew each other and they were being convicted of the same thing. And I'll tell you why I believe that because this guy understood what the other guy was charged with and was very clear about the fact that, hey man, you're guilty, you know it, I know it, we were there, we did the same thing together, we know we're guilty. But what's fascinating as you look at this is, as you would look at them from the external viewpoint or the outward appearance they look both just as guilty as can be but you know what's fascinating and what was sung this morning is this that God does not look at external appearances but he looks at the condition of the heart and there was something different that he was he was the other of a different kind though he looked the same there was something different about this thief compared to the other thief and it's important that we realize what that is what is the difference between the two of them well, the one continued to challenge Jesus to, to prove he was God. He wanted him to do what he wanted to do. He was a proud man, a stubborn man. He refused to be broken by this ordeal. He was going to die shaking his fist at everybody's face that came along, including the face of God. He wasn't broken. He wasn't humble. He wasn't contrite. He didn't acknowledge his guilt. But this other guy, you know what's interesting is this. Both of them, at the beginning, hurled insults at Jesus. Matthew tells us in his account that both of them were hurling the same insults when they first were crucified, but in the time that they hung on the cross, this other man came to a whole different perspective. This other man became broken of heart. 
this other man, look what he says. He says, hey, don't you even fear God? I'm afraid to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to face God. I'm a murderer and a thief, and I'm being hung for it, and I'm guilty, and I know it. I don't want to die. What am I going to say to God? I was better than most of my friends. I went to church once, twice, every day until I decided to kill somebody and rob something. I don't want to die. Why? I am guilty before God. And if this is bad, that's going to be worse. I don't want to die. Aren't you afraid of God? And what's interesting is this. You know how hard it is to talk when you're on the cross? It was so hard to talk. Why? Because you had to push yourself up. They had a little post where your feet are, and you'd push yourself up to get, get air, to breathe. And then they would slump back down, and all the weight of your body was on your diaphragm, and it was like, couldn't even breathe, couldn't even talk. Think about the pride and the stubbornness of a man who can't even talk or breathe, who was dying of thirst as he hung out there, and he would look at Jesus and say, if you're really God, save yourself and us. Can you imagine the pride and arrogance of this man? But the other thief said, hey, don't you even fear God? Look what he says. We indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. You know what this man came to the conclusion of as he hung there? I'm guilty. I'm a guilty man. And in case you forgot, buddy, you're guilty too. I was with you. I saw you. You're guilty. You're guilty before man, and you're guilty before God. Because God records in his word that they were both criminals. They were both guilty. But the one guy acknowledged his guilt. He says, we, 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 what we're getting, we deserve. He says this, but this man, he's done nothing wrong. What was the difference between these two guys? One was stubborn, he was proud. The other was broken and had a contrite heart and the sacrifices of God that weren't going to be despised were a broken and contrite heart. And what's amazing is this. Look what he says. He says to Jesus as he turns to him, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you realize the faith and the courage it took? First of all, the courage it took to recognize that Jesus Christ was a king and that he'd have a kingdom as he hung dying on the cross. The courage that it took to defy his friend who was mocking him and who he used to mock himself and defy him and say, you're guilty and I'm guilty. We deserve what we get. This man's innocent. And to defend the innocence of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the courage it took as people were walking by and heard this whole exchange? They would begin to mock and hurl insults at him too. What are you now, Jesus freak too? What are you, what are you, what's your problem? You believe this? Do you realize the courage that it took and the faith that it took to watch a man die and say, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah of the world, that you're dying for my sins, and because you die for my sins, you can forgive me of my sin? He read that this is Jesus of Nazareth, and here was a guy who was a crook and a thief, and if you remember anything about Nazareth, that wasn't exactly the, the hottest place to live. In fact, Philip once said to him, hey, you know, here's Philip and Nazareth, and they said, does anything good come out of there? That's a cesspool. And this guy's thinking, you know what? This guy understands me. He understands me. He may even understand why I did what I did. But what's more important is he's willing to forgive me. Remember me today. Remember me when you come into your kingdom and look at Jesus' reward for such faith. He said this, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me 
in paradise. What was his reward? The word paradise is an interesting word. It was a word that was used at the Garden of Eden. It was a word that the Apostle Paul used when he talked about the, the third heaven or the place of the, the uh, residence of God himself. When he said, today you will be with me in paradise, what he was saying was, today you're going to heaven. Why is he going to heaven? What did he do? I remember the first time when this just gripped me and grabbed me, and I've never forgot it since then, and that's this. This man could do nothing else but put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sin. He wasn't getting down off that cross. He wasn't going to church. He wasn't going to be baptized. He wasn't going to go to a Bible study. He wasn't going through a discipleship program. He wasn't going to go take all the stuff that he stole from somebody and give it to everybody that he stole it from. He wasn't going to build a wing onto a church or a hospital and have it named after himself. He wasn't going to be able to do anything other than put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And God honored that faith by saying this, Today, salvation has come to your household as it did to Zacchaeus and that you will be with me in heaven. We need to recognize and understand the simplicity of the gospel message. And that is very simply this. By grace we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God and not of works so that none of us can ever boast before God. Do you realize that that's what the crucifixion is all about? He believed in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of His sin. And Jesus Christ rewarded Him by saying that today you will be with me in heaven. Wow. You realize that you too can have the same assurance? The same confidence? If you don't know what's going to happen to you today if you die, just like the call I got last night about Ben passing away. Our life here is but a vapor, the Bible says. Every one of us that are here today and listening to these words are going to die. It's appointed for man to die once and then we've got to face the judgment of God. Are you ready to face the judgment of God? The Bible says that you can be spared that judgment by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. That he who had no sin was made sin on our behalf. He was a substitute for our, our sin. He was the substitute for our judgment. We're on the road to hell unless we invite Jesus Christ into our life. There is no other way. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. We need to share that with everybody and anybody that God brings in our path that will listen to us because that is the only way they'll escape the judgment of God. Jesus Christ does not want our pity. He wants our faith. That's all that he wants. He wants us to have faith in him, to trust in him. And that's exactly what this man did. He was guilty and so are we. But you know what? All he did was acknowledge his guilt. God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, son of God, son of David, for I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. God, I thank you for his, for, for his forgiveness. I thank you for his sacrifice. And I invite him to come into my life. That's a prayer that God will never despise. That's a prayer that God listens for and longs for throughout all of eternity of all of His people. In closing, I want you to consider that. If you don't have a clue what's going to happen, I just implore you, I encourage you to believe like that thief did that Jesus Christ died for your sins. In closing, I read this poem and I want to share it with you. And then I want you to turn while I'm reading this to 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1. <clears throat> but George McLeod writes this, and I like what he wrote, and it's applicable for what we're discussing. He says this, I simply argue 
that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. It says, I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but he was crucified on a cross between two thieves on a town garbage heap at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek. And at, the, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. He says, because that is where he died and that's what he died about. And that is where Christ's men ought to be and what church people ought to be about. The Apostle Paul writing to the uh, Corinthians wrote these words in the first chapter of the first book when he says this, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He goes on and says in the second verse of the second chapter, For I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message of salvation and hope for mankind. They crucified Him, but God from the beginning, that was His plan. We participated, we're guilty, and the only place we have to turn is to God for the forgiveness of our sin. Father, we thank You for this message. We thank You for the clarity of Your Word. God, I just thank You that there was a time in my life where I recognized my guilt, that You made it known to me, and that I was able to, in humility, ask for forgiveness and believe that Jesus Christ died in my place. God, I just pray for those who are here and listening that they would come to the same conclusion, that you would make that known in their heart, that they wouldn't be a prideful and foolish thief that hung next to Jesus, that continued to challenge him to prove himself. He has more than proved himself throughout human history. He is God. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God, help us to see that and help us to turn to him and ask for forgiveness. God, I just pray that those who don't know you would invite Jesus Christ into their life today and recognize that they, like the other thief, can have an assurance and confidence that when they die, they'll be absent from their bodies, but present with the Lord, because it's by your grace and through faith that we're saved. It's not a gift, so none of, I mean, it's not a, an act of works, so none of us will ever be able to boast. God, we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.